0: this is recording.
1: RTI
2: International Center Forensic presents Just
1: Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for forensic science professionals and anyone who is interested in learning more about how real crime laboratories work. In the final episode of the DNA season, just Science interviews Jan Seppich, co-founder of the nonprofit organization DNA Saves, about lawfully owed arrestee DNA. In 2003, 22-year-old Katie Seppich was raped and murdered within five blocks of her home in New Mexico. Using skin and blood found under her fingernails, investigators were able to produce a full DNA profile and uploaded it into CODIS. Her killer was identified three years later. Now, in 2019, her mother, Ann Sepich, continues to advocate for lawfully owed DNA. Listen along as she discusses expanding the DNA database and the importance of arrestee DNA collection in this episode of Just Science. Some content in this podcast may be considered sensitive and may evoke emotional responses or may not be appropriate for younger audiences. This season is funded by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Here is your host, Dr. John Morgan.
2: And welcome to Just Science, the podcast for forensic science professionals. I'm your host, John Morgan, with RTI International and the Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. The FTCOE is a program of the National Institute of Justice devoted to technology transition and improving innovation in forensic science organizations. I'm here today with J.N. Seppich. The Seppich family established DNA Saves, a nonprofit organization dedicated to educating policymakers and the public about the power of DNA databases and evidence. DNA Saves has submitted amicus briefs in four U.S. court cases, including Maryland versus King, which was heard by the United States Supreme Court upholding the constitutionality of arrestee DNA databases. I'd say J.N. is one of the most important advocates for Arrestee DNA Collection in the United States, and she has been working very uh, very diligently to get Arrestee legislation passed in all 50 states. And I want to talk to her today about how the forensic science community can respond appropriately to Arrestee DNA Collection. So welcome to the podcast, Jan.
0: Thank you for having
2: me. I really appreciate it. So Jay-Ann, uh like uh, a lot of people who are advocates, you... Uh, didn't start off being somebody who thought you would spend a lot of years (laughs) working in policy and politics and uh, especially things related to to DNA. Uh, Had you been involved back before? Uh, You had the uh, incident with your daughter, and we'll talk about that, uh, in any of this kind of work? Not at all. I was just a a wife and a mother, and my husband and I
0: have businesses, and are you know, just very involved in my, my little hometown, but nothing
2: like this at all. Sure. To me, really interesting to see how important the advocacy community has been in DNA. It's obviously a very, very powerful tool and a tool that uh, we're still learning how to use to its greatest impact. Can you tell me, if you will, uh, about your own story? So why did somebody who really never had gotten involved in policy stuff before, uh, become an advocate for the expansion of a REST-DNA collection.
0: Well, in 2003, my 22-year-old daughter, Katie, my firstborn child, was a graduate student at New Mexico State University. And she went to a friend's house and got into an argument with her boyfriend and decided to walk home. It was about four or five blocks in a very safe neighborhood and she disappeared. And it turned out that she had been very brutally raped. She had been strangled and her body was set on fire and dumped in the desert. And as a result of that, we learned more than we ever wanted to know about the criminal justice system. We learned that what you see on CSI and law and order isn't how it works in the real world. And we were especially shocked to learn that DNA was not being used like fingerprints. We thought it was. We thought when someone was arrested, and they had their fingerprints taken and their photograph taken, that they also swabbed their cheek and put that into the National Forensic Database, CODIS. And we learned that in most states at that time, it was illegal to do that. We were just stunned. And so over the next two years after Katie was murdered, we started doing research and we were trying to look into why it wasn't being done, what what the system really was, just as much as we could find out. We were particularly interested because the only evidence that we had in Katie's case was DNA. Katie fought really hard for her life and she had the skin and blood of the man that killed her under her fingernails. And and that yielded a complete DNA profile, but when they ran it through CODIS, there was no match. So we started out because we really wanted justice. We wanted to find this man that had done this horrible thing to our daughter and stop him. But it soon grew to more than that when we realized that the potential for using DNA, especially taken at the time of arrest, that the the great potential was not just solving crimes but preventing future crimes, And that's when we decided to stop researching and start doing something. So that's how we got involved.
2: So Katie uh, was uh, murdered in 2003. Is that correct?
0: Yes, August of 2003. We first started working on it in the – really, truly working on it in the fall of 2005. That's when when we went to our uh, state representative and told him our story and asked that maybe he would want to introduce the law. And uh, he did in January of 2006 in New Mexico State Legislature, and that's how we started.
2: At that time, the DNA database was really still evolving. I uh, happened to have been at NIJ at the time. and. We were just starting to invest in collection of DNA more broadly and supporting the analysis of the DNA profiles so they could be put into the database. And it was just then that kind of the promise that DNA could have in cold case solutions was being realized. Did the people in New Mexico, the folks that you encountered in in law enforcement, how did they view your advocacy in terms of expanding the DNA database?
0: They were thrilled. They were absolutely thrilled. Um, as a matter of fact, I'll never forget when we had the Senate Judiciary Committee hearing. The room was packed with law enforcement, full uniform. They came in to support us. And I'll never forget that. But when we had our, our talks beforehand, they were they were very supportive and said this was a tool that I would love to have. You know, They were very happy that we were trying to do this. And they were very happy when we got it passed.
2: So this was 2005 was when you started talking to your state legislator. And when did New Mexico actually pass it?
0: In February of 2006, Mm -hmm. and it was signed into law March of 2006. In New Mexico, we have very short legislative sessions. We have 30-day sessions alternating with 60-day sessions every other year. And this was a 30-day session. And I was told over and over that it would be impossible to pass something this controversial in 30 days. But I moved to Santa Fe, which is about four hours away from home, and just stayed there for the whole session. And um, we got it passed.
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's extraordinary. So the other thing that's extraordinary about the, the time sequence of events here is is that the DNA hit that caught Katie's murderer was actually after that. It was in 2006 that the case oh. was solved, isn't it, right?
0: Right. The hit was in, uh, well, we were notified of the hit December 18th, 2006. And as I understand it, they had actually gotten that match about about a week prior to that. And they started, you know, investigating based on that match and very quickly could put together a case. They notified of us of the match on December 18th, and Gabriel Avila was formally charged with Katie's murder rape kidnapping on December 26, 2006, which ironically would have been her 26th birthday.
2: Wow. And we know now that he had actually committed uh, other felony offenses that would have gotten him into the DNA database in the meantime.
0: Yes. Um, Less than three months after he murdered Katie, he broke into the home of two young college girls and they managed to get into a bathroom, lock the door. They had their cell phone, they called the police, and the police got there in time to catch him there. And he then was arrested for burglary, which is obviously a felony, but we didn't have an arrestee DNA testing law at that time, so they did not swap his cheek at that time. He was convicted of that crime, and because he didn't have a prior history they allowed him to bond out. His father-in-law pay, paid a $25,000 cash bond, and he fled. He went back to Mexico. He was here in this country illegally, and he went back to Mexico and was there for almost three years. And he came back to see his family, and one of the policemen that knew that he had fled saw him and stopped him, and then when they put him in prison, they swapped his cheek. So that was, like I said, in probably late November, early December 2006
2: is when, you know, when that happened.
0: Yeah, And then the law went into effect January 1st, 2007, in New Mexico.
2: Have you ever heard of the case of Rafael Resendez? Do you know that case?
0: No, I don't.
2: So, it's interesting because it was just a few years before Katie's murder. uh, Rafael Resendez was an individual who had committed some very serious violent crimes in the United States also fled to Mexico, and what's horrific about it is that he was using, using the border, basically, to both get away with uh, murder on both sides of the border. So he, uh, he estimated that he killed as many as 50 people in Mexico, maybe as many as a, a dozen here in the United States, and, and part of the idea of trying to improve information sharing with Mexico, improve how we do biometric collection at the border back uh, in the 90s and 2000s, Came out of the Resendez case. And uh, so uh, Avila was basically, uh, you know, doing exactly what Resendez was doing and uh, taking advantage of of the fact that, you know, we we just don't do a good job there uh, on some of these cases. Uh, Now, was that the man they called the railroad killer? It sounds right, yeah. I believe Resendez is the railroad killer. Yeah, because I am familiar with that. I just didn't remember his name. So it's extraordinary because uh, uh, an arrestee law if it had been in place, would have at the very least solved Katie's murder very, very soon and probably would have saved an awful lot of trauma right. both here in the United States and Mexico from whatever, wherever else you may have victimized that we may, may never know. But you had already started in the advocacy before knowing that, and so it must have been very, I don't know, it must have been quite an emotional time for you to know that the, the advocacy you had done was so critical to the issue uh, at, at hand.
0: Well, and I learned later also that one of the reasons he was swabbed so quickly when he was eventually caught and put into prison was that we had passed Katie's law and that in New Mexico, they, you know, there was a lot of attention on collection of DNA evidence. And so because there was so much attention at that time of DNA and collection, they had really ramped up the collection of convicted felons. And they said that. Possibly, if, if we'd never worked and passed on Katie's law, it might have been a lot longer of a time period before they had actually swapped him and got those results. So we were very grateful for that.
2: New Mexico at the time must have been one of the first states to do an arrestee law because most of the states at that point were still debating about how broadly they were going to collect from convicted offenders. So there were even, I assume, I, right. I, I haven't looked, but I bet you there, there were a few states that were still only collecting from people who were committing homicide and sexual assault and not from burglars, even among convicted offenders at that
0: time. Yes. I actually testified in uh, Nevada to try to get them to pass all convicted felons, and I believe that was in 2007. So there were still a number of states that hadn't passed the all convicted felons law when we were working on arrestees. And New Mexico was actually the sixth state to pass an arrestee law. Texas, Louisiana, Virginia, Minnesota had passed some sort of law to take DNA prior to conviction, and then California had passed Proposition 69, which was how California became an arrestee state. And that happened before New Mexico passed their law. So New Mexico was the sixth state.
2: And you alluded to the fact that you know not all arrestee legislation is the same. Just as all not all convicted offender legislation is the same. So when when New Mexico first passed, they actually did not include burglary in the law. Is that correct?
0: No, they did include burglary. It's just that the law hadn't taken effect. Well, we didn't even have the law passed when Adela was first arrested for burglary in 2006. When we passed the law, it was for collection for arrests for violent crimes, sexual assaults, and burglary, but it didn't include you know lower level felonies like forgery or receiving stolen property or drug charges. It only included the more violent crimes. In 2011, interestingly enough, the district attorney that prosecuted Katie's killer was Susana Martinez. And in 2010, she was elected governor of the state of New Mexico. And her first official act was to announce that she wanted to expand what we call in New Mexico Katie's Law to all felony arrests. So we went back to the legislature in 2011 and did manage to get it passed to all felony arrests. And the incredible thing was when that took effect July 1st, 2011, they started keeping statistics of the crimes that would not have been collected under the original law. And it was determined that our match rate went up 89% as a result of expanding it to include all felonies. And that was shocking to me. I had no idea that because we weren't collecting from those lower level felonies, we were missing so many matches. And that kind of fired me up to go back to other states and expand where we hadn't been able to expand, and then also going forward to do everything we could to get states to just go ahead and and in their initial law to collect from all felonies.
1: Mm
2: So right now, about how many states have arrestee laws at this point?
0: That's kind of a tricky question. There are 31 that have some sort of law to take DNA prior to conviction. But Minnesota, um, very early on, it was one of the first states that passed, even before we passed in New Mexico. And very early on, they faced a challenge. And so their law was struck down. And then after the Marilyn v. King case, where the Supreme Court said that it was constitutional, there was a sheriff that just decided, well, since the Supreme Court ruled that it is constitutional, that he was going to start collecting, and he did, and then immediately faced another court challenge in Minnesota. So Minnesota is is not actually collecting right now, but they did pass a law. So we count them in the 30 31, but there are 30 states that are actually collecting at this point, and um, 18 of those take from all felony arrests.
2: So I understand you're gonna be visiting our uh, beautiful Raleigh here because North Carolina is not an all felonies arrestee state. Is that right?
0: Right, that's correct. And we, taught, we were working on it last year and we did not end up getting a bill introduced, but we're hoping that we can get a bill introduced in North Carolina to expand to all felony arrests. So we don't have a sponsor as of yet. We don't have a bill as of yet, but that is definitely you know one of
2: our goals. So, Jan, there's two things about this that I think, you know, deserve to have serious conversation. And, and the first is its impact on the forensic science community. I do want to talk about that because that's who we are uh, and who this podcast is going out to primarily. And things have changed a lot since you were first involved in the terms of the efficiency that the... Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> it's really much better. At, at the time of, uh, in the early 2000s especially, The turnaround time to be able to do convicted offender processing, or basically we'll call it like reference sample processing, was significantly longer, and so it didn't matter as much because it it wasn't necessarily that much faster than the criminal justice system. But we've got a lot better at it than we had in the past. Oh, absolutely. uh, Yeah, because I think a lot of forensic laboratory people are like, goodness gracious, we've got enough already going on. (laughs) <laughs> and we're trying our best to even catch up mm-hmm. with what we've gotten in backlogs of uh, crime scene samples, even the backlogs. There's some still backlogs of, of the reference sample uh, work as well. Uh, you know, How do you respond to those kinds of concerns as you talk to uh, the forensic scientists out there on, on this issue?
0: Well, first of all, I want to say to all of the forensic science community that's listening that you guys are my heroes. I know that you have more work to do than you can do and you need a lot more funding and you know we always try to to do everything we can to get as much funding as possible but I know that it's it's not the best situation to work in and when you have someone like me that's pushing to give you more work that can be you know that can be daunting but I so appreciate the work that you do you know you're you're the ones that identified my daughter's killer and gave our family incredible resolution and peace. So thank you so much. What we do has evolved a great deal since we started, you know, we're learning all the time. And one of the things that we feel is really important to do before we start working on legislation in any state, we absolutely want the lab's input and we want to know, you know, how they feel and what they think they can do. And we make it a point now to meet with those folks so that They are very comfortable with it going forward and that they can be supportive. That's really important to us is that we work as a partnership. But then to answer your question, John, even if that sample can't be processed immediately, we have it. When we swab that cheek when they're arrested, we have it. And that means that we do have that piece of the puzzle that eventually can solve the crime. And of course, I would like for uh, it to be quicker faster because I know how important that is but I do believe that every step forward is a good step and so it's it's so incredibly important to get that information you know we have so many cases that we can look back and say if the system were working the way we would hope that it can work eventually we have our goal here's lives that we know would have been saved here's victims that we know would never have been raped and that's the goal. You know, that's the goal. And I so believe that things are changing. It's like you said, John, we're, we're seeing so many things change since I started working on this. We're making progress. And even though it seems like it's been so slow and taken so long, the progress has been absolutely wonderful. And so the, the goal is to just keep working towards that eventual gold standard of everything being to its maximum potential.
2: The corollary interesting point I guess I'd make, I think about it in military terms because I've done some military work and, and they mm-hmm. call it, I don't know if you've ever heard of the OODA loop, it's, it's the observe, orient, decide, act loop. And military folks like to talk about that and the idea being it's like, the sooner you observe something and figure out how you're going to react to it and then, then act on that, on that decision, on that good decision, the more effective you're going to be. And it's true in criminal justice as well. The quicker justice happens, the more likely it's going to have an impact on the offender's long-term behavior uh, if they're going to be somebody who would be re-released. But it also has an impact on their likelihood of offending even in the, in the first place. And, you know, it, Part of it's preventing reoffending, which I, I think definitely this is all about. But it's also about just changing how police operate so that they're they're using this technology, they're responding so much more quickly, and they're creating public safety, not just solving the case at hand.
0: That's right. Of course, what drives our family is this idea of victims that will not become victims. I just, I, just, I know, I know what it, our family has gone through because we lost Katie. And, you know, it sounds like a big cliche, but we just want to prevent that from happening to others. We know how horrible it is. And we have this incredible science that we can use that can truly prevent other families from losing their child or other women from being raped. And that's that's what's so important to us. The other thing that I think is very important is that if we can use DNA to its maximum potential in the crimes, that have DNA to be used, that releases a lot of time for law enforcement to do you know, traditional detective work on crimes that don't have
2: DNA evidence.
0: So it's not only a win for crimes with DNA, it's a big win for crimes without DNA evidence.
2: Yeah, the, the fact is, is that you know we, we still aren't that great at doing cold cases and the investigation that's necessary to, to close cold cases. And DNA and forensic science really are the very, very best way, in my view, to close cold cases. And that's Absolutely. something. Yeah, yeah. We're actually doing a cold case symposium, JN, uh, here this coming year in the Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. So we're actually going to be bringing investigators and other law enforcement leaders in to talk about how we can use DNA and other forensic science. Uh, much more proactively in cold case investigation, and take advantage of things like uh, DNA collection and and how investigation is done very fundamentally.
0: I really appreciate that. I think I think the more the more education, the better.
2: Tell me about Maryland versus King, and I will say this, and that is that you know I look like a lot of people at the news reports today. You know, and China is, is using biometrics and to track their citizens on, on a minute-by-minute minute basis. And there, a lot of countries are talking about collecting DNA at birth. And I don't want to live in a society where there's that much surveillance of me. So I, I'm very sympathetic to the privacy arguments here. And some of those privacy arguments have been the most powerful arguments against what you're trying to accomplish.
0: Right. Well, first of all, I I really believe because of the way the CODA system was designed that privacy is supremely protected. That was one of the first things I did in in my research because I care about privacy too. The last thing I wanted was for my daughter's name to go on a law or be associated with a law that was going to be very invasive of someone's privacy. So that was, the, that was the thing that I spent a lot of time researching. And of course, as all forensic scientists understand, the profile that goes into CODIS is just a little tiny, tiny piece of the, the genome. And it was specifically designed to have non-coding information that doesn't reveal anything private about a person. And I think that was very important to me. And it's been very important to legislators who initially were totally against this. But when they learned how the how it actually works, became proponents. I actually have my real DNA profile on the back of my business card because I know that it doesn't have anything private about me that can be revealed. I don't have my home address on my business card. I certainly wouldn't put my social security number there, but I do, you know, my Actual DNA profile as it would go into CODIS is on the back of my business card. But the, the Maryland v. King case was very, very inter- interesting. Alonzo King was arrested for first and second degree assault in June 2013. And as according to the Maryland law, which had been passed, a DNA sample was taken from King at the time of arrest and entered into Maryland's database. And then it matched to an unsolved rape case in 2003. Then King filed a motion to suppress the DNA evidence, uh, saying that it infringed upon his Fourth Amendment right, which prohibits unreasonable searches and seizures. And his motion was denied by the circuit court for the county where he lived. And he pled not guilty to the charge of rape and appealed the ruling in the Maryland Court of Appeals reversed the original ruling. Uh, They agreed that the DNA sampling was a violation of the Fourth, uh, Fourth Amendment. And of course, then it went up to the United States Supreme Court. And the decision was very close. It was five to four in favor of Maryland. I do think that one of the things that Supreme Court watchers found very interesting was who joined together to be against it and who joined together to be for it because uh, Justice Scalia, Bader Ginsburg, and Sotomayor, and Kagan filed a very scathing dissenting opinion, you know, and then the five remainder, uh, Roberts, Kennedy, Thomas. Anyway, they they filed, you know, they voted in favor. So, Aristide DNA collection was upheld in that, in that case. So, Breyer was on the uh, majority, and he is considered, you know, one of the more liberal judges, and he was in the majority and then of course Scalia uh, was dissenting and he's usually he and I mean they said that this is probably one of the only times that Scalia and Thomas split because they usually are in lockstep uh, but Thomas was with the majority and Scalia was in the minority so it was, and our family was very honored to be there for oral arguments in that case and it was just fascinating to me because of course I'd never been there in person for any Supreme Court case. And it it was really fascinating. But when I left those oral arguments, I thought we were gonna lose. I was not optimistic, so I was thrilled when Mm -hmm. the decision came down the way it did.
2: The way in which uh, forensic evidence in particular is handled has been one of the most interesting ways in which the majorities and minorities and the Supreme Court uh, break down in unusual ways. It's not not always predictable what they will do so Maryland is now collecting from all felony arrestees at this point? What's the status of the uh, legal side of things in Maryland? They're one of the states that
0: collects only from violent crime, sexual assaults, and burglary. So they, they do not collect for all felony arrests.
2: Is there another shoe to drop here? Uh, is there anyone advocating for going beyond all felonies? Because there is, like, for example, there are misdemeanants out there who... Some people I've seen have have argued should be included in the DNA database, and I think in some instances are. And, of course, there's some discussion about, as we talked about, at the border using uh, rapid DNA at the border. I know it's something DHS has, has been deploying on a pilot basis at the very least and talking about expanding. What's your view in terms of where the limit should be? How do we decide how to balance the need to have DNA for uh, use in criminal justice proceedings and public safety versus privacy of individuals.
0: New York State does not have an arrestee testing law, but they do take DNA from all convicted crimes. So in New York State, if you're convicted of even a misdemeanor, your DNA is taken. And what's been fascinating is how many violent crimes have been linked to those convicted of of a very seemingly minor crime. They've identified a lot of homicide cases because people were arrested for petty larceny. The numbers are just really high. So what I would advocate for is that in every state, DNA is taken upon arrest for every felony and upon conviction for every crime. Mm -hmm. I think that's reasonable. And based on what we've seen, I think it would be very useful. So that's where I would draw the line.
2: How familiar are you with some of the research in this area? Do we have a a clear idea about where the line is, just from a pure cost-benefit perspective, can we at least on the, obviously there's been a lot of arrestee uh, laws. Uh, I know that New Mexico had this really great 89% increase. Do we kind of have a way of taking that and translating that to all the states in terms of what the impact of arrestee collection is?
0: Well, I do know that there was a study conducted at the University of Virginia, and the result of that study was that for every DNA reference profile that goes into CODIS, it saves the taxpayer $27,000. And the average cost of a reference DNA profile going into CODIS right now is about $30 to $35. So a $30 to $35 expenditure nets a $27,000 savings. And that was based on uh, reference samples samples from convicted offenders and arrestees. I don't think that was based on any convicted misdemeanors. It also follows almost the same percentage of the the findings from the Denver study, which when they did their study several years ago, they found for every dollar invested in DNA, there's a $90 savings. And it's almost the same percentage. I found that very interesting.
2: Yeah, for those of you who out there in, in just science land who are regular listeners, you'll know that the author of the cost-benefit analysis study on DNA is Paul Speaker, and his uh, paper uh, appeared in FSI Synergy, so, which was funded, by the way, uh, JN, by RFTCOE, by this program. So we're very happy to be associated with uh, Paul Speaker's work and everything that he's doing to show the impact of the uh, collection of DNA uh, and the use of DNA more broadly in the criminal justice system. So Jan, what's next? I mean, are you? Uh, uh, how are you uh, working at this point? Are you uh, just uh, trying to get people like my friends here in Raleigh in line and get uh, arrestee legislation passed? Do you think that there's a need? I know that uh, the federal government uh, did pass the Katie Sepic uh, Enhanced DNA Collection Act in 2012 to help with the funding of DNA database work. Uh, where do you think uh, things are heading right now from a policy perspective and? And kind of what do you think the forensic science community can expect to to happen here in the next five years or so in terms of how the you know the uh, state and federal legislation is going to evolve well that's a huge question yeah <laughs> um,
0: but I, I can I can tell you you know
2: where our focus
0: is first of all we would love to see every state in the country have a law that requires DNA be taken for every felony arrest that's number one I've also become aware in the last, few years that there are states that have passed the law that are actually not collecting. So we're working on that as well. We're trying to go back to these states that we feel like are not collecting or not processing and find out why and encourage that they do collect and process every sample that's lawfully owed. And that's a huge job. We've also been working with the federal government to implement the DNA Fingerprint Act, which was signed into law in 2006 but has not yet been fully implemented. That law requires that anyone arrested for any federal crime have their DNA taken and put into CODIS, and that anyone in this country illegally, upon being detained, that they have a DNA sample taken and put into CODIS. So we're working to see that implemented as well. We're also very excited about rapid DNA. We wanna make certain that it's perfect. We certainly don't want you know anything to happen that would taint the whole CODIS system. So we're very, but we do believe that it's progressing in a thoughtful, you know, thorough way. And that when the FBI does say that it's okay for rapid to be used for inclusion in the CODIS, that it will it will be, you know, really as effective and as as flawless as the CODIS system has been in the past. So, but we're very excited about that, which e- gives us even more reason to try to pass arrest DNA laws so that uh, Rapid DNA can be used at booking stations. I've been able to see the machines, see how they work, see the all of the safety features and the protocols that have been put in place, and I feel very confident that it's going to be a good system that won't have any errors or problems. So, But we're very excited about Rapid because, you know, when you think you, you've arrested someone and they've been arrested for a felony and you swab their cheek and within 90 minutes, it's been run through artists, which is the homicides, sexual assaults, kidnapping, the higher level crimes. But within 90 minutes, they could see if that person's DNA matches to any of those crimes. So while that person is still there, you have that information. And that, to me, is amazing and wonderful.
2: Yeah, it is, it is interesting. And it's going to be something where the forensic science community, is, as we talked about earlier, really is going to need... Some more investment because you know putting rapid DNA instruments out there and getting that ninety minute reference sample done, uh, so you have all the supplies and everything like that. It's expensive. It does take some. It does take some funding, and I think that's one of the things holding back. It is expensive. I can tell you this though. I have high hopes
0: that it will follow most other technology and become less expensive. I mean, I remember when I was in high school, my mother had to have a microwave. It was in a radar range, and Back in 1973, it was over $2,000. When you figure that in, you know, current dollars, really expensive. Well, now, as you know, you can get a functioning microwave at Target for $89. So, I'm yes. really hoping we'll see that, you know, that the price will come down as it becomes more and more accepted. I'm hoping that will happen because it is expensive. So, you know, I'm hoping. And I also, I've, I've talked to a lot of people in a lot of labs across the country about rapid DNA. And, you know, some are very, very excited. Some are leery. But it's like any new technology, it, it's going to take a while to make sure that everybody feels comfortable with it. But I think the thing that I'm I'm really encouraged about is, like I said, when I saw the machine and I saw all of the safety features that are built in and, and how it works, it, it kind of eased my mind.
2: One of the things that is remarkable to me is just how much DNA has changed over the last 20 years. We've seen the DNA database go from a few hundred thousand samples up to, uh, I think, almost 20 million now. And the power of DNA to close cold cases and to just generally contribute has been really transformed. And that's really, really exciting as uh, somebody who's really been in the middle of it, as well as many folks out there in the forensic science community who've been in the middle of it. It makes me think, you know, you'll never know uh, just how many uh, people that that you've helped, that you've saved from the same fate as I'm um, very sorry to, to, to know that your daughter suffered. But I'm sure that there are a great, great many uh, victims who aren't victims today because of DNA and because of arrestee databases. And so you thank the forensic science community. Well, we, we thank you, Jan, for all of the advocacy and the work that you continue to do in this area. Well, thank
0: you, John. And I can just say this is an incredibly personal mission for our family. We adored. Katie you know she was she was a light and we just we miss her so much and we don't want anyone else to ever lose someone they love especially if that crime could have been prevented and you know that's that's what keeps us going that's that's what matters to us is this very personal feeling that this incredible science this powerful powerful science truly can save many lives and prevent many others from being, becoming victims of horrible crime. So, you know, that's what matters to us. We just really, really do care about that. So I I do believe in, in that power. And I, I also believe in all of the people that are working so hard to, to make it right and make it work. And I appreciate it very much.
2: Thank you very much for being on Just Science with us today, Jan. Well, thank you for the opportunity. I appreciate it. And thank you all for listening. Please uh, make sure to uh, tell all of your friends and colleagues about Just Science and tune in uh, each week to hear from people who are leading the community forward in forensic science innovation.
1: Thank you for tuning in to the DNA season of Just Science. Your support helps us continue to produce content relevant to forensic scientists and the criminal justice community. Keep your eyes and ears open for our next season, Improving the System, beginning this winter. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding.